0: Welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. My favorite time of the year is Easter. Uh, The Scripture says in Revelations that Jesus Christ was crucified before the foundations of the earth. So it means that God had this plan of salvation for mankind from the very beginning. And what we need to realize and recognize is that the Old Testament points us throughout history and brings us to the New Testament. There are things that took place in the Old Testament that show us Jesus Christ. And one thing that I want to quickly capitalize on this morning is the rainbow. All of us enjoy a rainbow when we see it after the rain. And the rainbow actually points to Jesus Christ. And in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 6, it says this, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God had created man and had hoped that he was going to walk with him in the still of the day in the garden and have communion with him throughout. But man, in his sinfulness, grieved the heart of God. So the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and then you go to verse 18 and it says but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark you your sons your wife and your sons wives with you God is a covenant God and he has made covenants throughout time with man and we're about to see this covenant here and how it will point to Jesus Christ Then we go from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9 and verse 12. It says this, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So when we read these scriptures from our Western culture mindset, we don't always see the things. We don't always understand these stories in the way the Jews or the Eastern culture would have understood those so i want to point out a couple of things here this morning first we must be aware of the fact that the covenant that god made concerning the rainbow was with one man noah but it was for all of the descendants and it also included all of mankind and all of the creatures do you know your little puppy dog has a covenant with god Secondly, we look at the rainbow and we we admire its beauty and, and those of us who understand scripture, we can look at the rainbow and understand that it fulfills that promise that God said he'll never again flood the earth. However, the Jew looks at the rainbow deeper than just that. He looks at it as God's judgment upon man's sin. Whenever a Jew sees the rainbow, he understands, yes, there's uh, God's promise that he'll never flood the earth again, but he also recognizes the sinfulness of man and how that God brought great judgment because of that sin. So the Jew sees the rainbow as God's wrath on mankind, and we being people who were deserving of that wrath. But it doesn't stop there. Hallelujah. We also see in the rainbow, and the Jews understand as well, the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Hallelujah. Which brings me to my third element of the rainbow that us Westerners need to understand. So concerning the, the rainbow, when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, the original Hebrew word for, for what we say rainbow is Q-E-S-E-T, queset. It actually meant bow not rainbow we in our English translation added the word rainbow so whenever the scripture was actually written it was said that God set his bow in the sky as a sign and this word bow in Q-E-S-E-T was a weapon of warfare and so when the Jew saw that God had hung his bow, a weapon of warfare in the sky. The Jew understood that God was saying, I no longer am at war with man. Isn't that good? Because you see, the the warrior would, whenever a warrior was fighting a, a battle, at the end of the day, he would lay his weapons down. But when the war was over, He hung it up, signifying that the war had ended. God is saying the same thing with his bow. He hung his bow up. And he said, I am no longer at war with man. But here comes the good part. Do you notice which way the bow is arched? The bow is arched up. It's not down towards man. And the Jews, they understood that God was saying, I am no longer pointing even a weapon at mankind. The weapon is pointed towards me. And the next time anyone dies for man's sin, it will be me. Do you get it? Do you see it? Hopefully from now on when you see a rainbow, you'll understand the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness of a loving God who has set his bow in the sky. And he says, I'm not against you. I'm for you. And I've sent my son to die for you. Never again Does man need to die because of his sin? All we have to do is receive the one who did die for our sin. And that's Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah.
1: Come on, that's a good word. The next time someone's going to die for sin, it ain't going to be man. It's going to be me. Thank you, Jesus. Before I preach, i got to say one more very important thing. And that is, it is Kevin Harner's birthday today. So not only are we celebrating Jesus, which is obviously more important. No, no offense, Kevin. But we're celebrating Kevin as well. So happy birthday, Mr. Kevin. I would sing, but that's my wife thinks it's, it's uh, embarrassing every time I do that. So... I won't do it for her sake this morning. If you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Let's start in verse 5. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Uh, one of the Pharisees, and he's having a conversation with him, and Jesus says this in verse five. He says, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you have you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes." And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not know these things. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, you do not believe how will you believe if i tell you heavenly things no one has ascended into heaven but he who came down from earth or came down from heaven that is the son of man who is in heaven you could spend some time on that one can't you no one has been to heaven except the son who came down from heaven who is in heaven is he on earth or is he in heaven we don't have time for that this morning Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I've often wondered why the serpent represents Jesus in this passage, when most of the time the serpent represents Satan, doesn't it? Represents the enemy. But in this passage, it represents Jesus. He says, just like Moses lifted up the staff with the serpent around it for the healing of the nation of Israel. So I must be lifted up. Then you realize Jesus said, I became the curse. I took on man's curse. He's, he's saying here that I'm lifted up, that the curse has been placed on me. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus is the serpent then in this passage who is lifted up. That as we look on him, it says, he who believes Or, but the world that through him might be saved. He who believes. I've skipped a bunch. Let me go back here. It's dark up here. I can't see very well. I am. I've noticed this is crazy. I'm. I'm going to be 34 this year, which I know is not really that old. But I can't see my Bible nearly as well up here as I used to. So I don't know if that's. I don't know what that means. But, anyways. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here we are, John three sixteen. Everybody say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we'll see which one of you had a good Bible Sunday school teacher. Let's see if we got number 17. You ready? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through the world. I didn't have a good Sunday school teacher. (laughs) The pressure. Let's try again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Condemnation was not on God's mind. He hung up his bow. He hung up his bow. Condemnation was not on God's mind. You know, the Bible says that there were two things that God already decided before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Two things. Pastor Ron already said one of them this morning. Anybody know? What was the first thing God decided before the foundation of the world was laid? Hang up his bow. You're listening. I love it. First thing he decided, that Christ would be crucified. That he was the lamb that was crucified before the foundation of the world. So the first thing God decides before the foundation of the world is that the lamb, that Jesus, would be crucified. What was the other thing he decided? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 37 tells us the other thing he decided before the foundation of the world was even laid was that he would choose you to be his sons and his daughters. Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. It says, Blessed is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Two things God decided before the foundation of the world, that he chose us to be his sons and daughters, and that Jesus would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If he had to decide before he even laid the foundation that he would, that the lamb would be slain, then he must have known before he ever created us, before he ever formed the world, that if he were to make us, that there was going to be a necessary lamb that would have to be slain. If he chose you as his sons and daughters before the foundation of the world, and he chose Jesus as the lamb to be slain, then he knew before he ever breathed life into Adam, that Adam was going to fall and was going to need a redeemer. But you know what the amazing part is? He still breathed his life into Adam. Knowing full well that there was going to be a cross in his future. Ephesians chapter 2 says that while we were yet sinners, that means before any of us, Ever accepted his gift of salvation, before any of us ever decided to clean up our acts, while some of us were still drug addicts and some of us were still uh, 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 performing sexual uh, uh, acts and different things, before all of that stuff, he already decided that he was going to be the lamb crucified. And it goes on and say in Ephesians chapter 2, it goes on to say, why did he do it? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Before you ever cleaned up your act, before you ever decided to begin living for him, he already decided that he was gonna be the lamb that was slain because of his great love for which he loved us, Amen? amen? Romans tells us, is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? Is there anything? And it says, is there, is there demons? Is there principalities? Is there powers? What can separate us from the love of God? And then it goes on to say that there's nothing, nothing in the heavens or in the earth that separates us from the love of God. But here's my question this morning. Do we actually believe that? We all said the verse this morning, for God so loved the world, right? We know the verse in and out, but do we actually believe the words that we have memorized? Do we actually walk in the fact that we were the sons and daughters, his sons and daughters, that he chose us before he ever created us, he chose us to be his sons and daughters? Do we actually walk in that reality? You know, the other day, one of our, one of our girls was in trouble. Surprise, surprise, right? (laughs) Shocker, I know. One of them was in trouble and uh, I don't even remember exactly what they did, but they were in trouble. I sent them to their room and I could just hear them up in the room and they were just sobbing. I mean, just sobbing. You would have thought that like I packed their little princess bag full of clothes, you know, and then kicked them and their stuffed animals on the road and said, don't ever come in my house again, you know, like they were just sobbing. So I went up there and I'm like, why are you so upset? Like, it, you, what you did wasn't that bad. It was probably like they left their shoes in the middle of the room or, you know, when we told them to pick it up. It's just something not that bad. And I was like, why, why are you sobbing? And, and they, looked at it, they looked at me and they said, they said, I'm afraid that you're not gonna love me anymore because I'm a bad kid. I'm not gonna, you're not gonna love me anymore because I did something bad and, and I'm afraid that you're, gonna, you're not gonna like me anymore. And uh, you would have thought in that moment that I would have been like, oh, I'm just, oh, and just give him a big hug, you know, and like, no. But I was already kind of still mad. <laughs> so so it, was, it was more like, that's ridiculous. Of course I'm gonna love you. Come on, you know, like. <laughs> but, my, but they had this idea that because they did something bad, that that made them bad, and that because they were bad, that I wasn't gonna love them anymore. And it seems ridiculous, right? Like, come on, parents, is there anything that your kids can do that would make you love them any less? No. Nothing. But yet this is the mentality we have sometimes with the Father. That God loves me as long as I go to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I pray, and especially as long as I don't sin or mess up. He loves me as long as I, as I do all of these things. And as long as I stay a good kid, then he's going to love me. And we know the right verses. We know that's not true, right? We know that God loves us, that there's nothing in this world that can change his love for us. Yet we still, every time we fail, every time we come short, every time we mess up, when we reapproach God, we think we're gonna find a God full of wrath and we don't remember that God hung his bow up that there's nothing that could change us. You know how I know we have this mentality? Because we develop a theology that says God can't even look at sin. I don't know about you, I grew up hearing that. and I've even preached that and have said that, that God is so holy and righteous that he can't even look upon sin. We act like sin is God's kryptonite right? Like like he somehow gets weakened if he even looks or is in the same room as sin. You know, the way I envisioned it, I remember this as a kid, I envisioned God in this perfectly white robe and he's perfectly holy and he's perfectly righteous and he better not get around someone with red wine in their hand because they may spill it and ruin his righteousness, like God's holiness is so fragile that He can't even look upon someone who sinned. It's ridiculous. You know, we, we've developed that mentality from one verse in the Bible, and it happened to be one of the verses where Jesus was hanging on the cross. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, it says that I think it was in the sixth hour or the ninth hour, or one of the hours. He, he was hanging on the cross, and it says that he looked up to heaven and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we've taken that verse, and through sermons, through movies, through music, we've painted this picture that at Jesus' most painful, most horrific hour, that his father turned his back on Jesus, and abandon him. And I wanna tell you, it's not true. It's not true. Jesus did not abandon, or the Father did not abandon Jesus on the cross. He did not abandon Jesus on the cross. And we're lucky enough to, that the Bible tells us exactly where Jesus was, or I'm sorry, the Bible tells us exactly where the Father was when Jesus was being crucified. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was not in a distant heaven with his back turned to Jesus on the cross. He was in God. God was in Christ, bearing the weight of the world's sins along with his son, Jesus. He was reconciling the world to himself. God did not abandon Jesus in his most painful hour. God was in Christ, going through all of it with him. And you know, this is this is scripture. This is the 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 story throughout all of the scripture. Even in the at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the story, and Adam and Eve, the very first sin that entered into the world, Adam sinned and fell short. And what does it say God did when Adam sinned? He walks into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? God didn't run away from the garden. He ran to Adam when Adam sinned and fell short. Moses sinned and fell short. David, look at David. David committed adultery and then murdered the husband of, of the, the husband um, that he, you know what I'm saying, he murdered somebody. (laughs) First he committed adultery and then he murdered the husband. God didn't run away from David. He didn't turn his back on David. He ran to David. He ran to him all throughout the Old Testament. When Israel sinned over and over and over again, he did not abandon Israel. He kept chasing after Israel. Just like in the story um, where the prophet marries the prostitute, Jesus kept chasing after us. He kept chasing after Israel. Then Jesus in the New Testament shows up on the scene. And he says things like, He says things like, I only do what I see my father does. I only say what I hear my father say. Colossians tells us that Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God. And Jesus, so Jesus is on the earth representing the father. He's on the earth representing the father. He runs into a tax collector named Zacchaeus who is known to be a crook. And what does he do? he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. He runs into a prostitute. In John chapter eight, what does Jesus do? And the religious elite wanna stone her, right? What does Jesus do? He doesn't turn his back on her. He instead stoops down in the dirt and catches her eyes. He looks right in her eyes. God doesn't run from us when we fall into sin. God doesn't abandon us when we fall into sin. You know what the most dangerous thing about the theology and the thought that God turned his back on Jesus on the cross is? The most dangerous thing about that thought process is that if God had to turn his back on Jesus who was bearing somebody else's sin, then that must mean he turns his back on us when we have to carry the weight of our own sin. And Jesus, the Father, does not turn his back on us when he sinned. He showed us over and over and over again throughout scripture that when we fall short, that when we mess up, that when we do things we're not supposed to, he doesn't turn his back on us. He runs to us. He runs to us, amen? God did not abandon Jesus in his greatest hour of need. Luke 19 verse 10 says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. God never turned his back on Jesus and he has never turned his back on you when you have sinned. Nothing, listen church, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Now know what you're all doing right now. You're sitting there thinking, well, Josh, why did he say, my God, my God, why did he, have you forsaken me? What, why would he say that if, G, if God did not forsake him, why would Jesus say that on the cross? Let me, let me help you out a little bit. He says this because he's pointing to the Psalm of the prophet David, Psalms 22. Psalms 22 starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a messianic psalm with many prophecies concerning Jesus' suffering on the cross. Here's a few of them. All my joints, all my bones are out of joint. Another verse says, They pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. They divided my garments and cast lots for them. This whole psalm begins with a man who feels forsaken, left to die, a man who feels despised and rejected by the world. He was quoting Psalms 22 on the cross to point us to the verse, the chapter and verse in Psalms 22, the prophetic psalm about his suffering on the cross. It begins with a man who feels forsaken, left to die, a man who feels despised and rejected by the world. But at the end of the psalm, the tone completely shifts and changes. Verse 24 says this, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor, and here it is guys, you ready? Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Right there in the prophetic psalm, it tells us, where God's attention was when Jesus was on the cross. His back wasn't turned to him. He was not forsaken. His eyes were on him. He was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And he points us to this Psalm, I think also, to tell us that in the times where we feel forsaken, in the times where we feel lost, in the times where we feel like God has abandoned us, he's pointing us to Psalms 22 to tell us, listen, you may feel abandoned, but I'd never leave you. I never forsake you, that you may have fallen into sin. You have, may have fallen into corruption. You may have done things you wish you would have never done, but I don't run away from your sin. I don't shy away from your rebellion. I run to you, and I embrace you, and I take that weight off of your shoulders, and I place it upon myself. God did not abandon Jesus on the cross, and he does not abandon you in your time of need. He does not abandon you. He does not abandon you. I said this last week, and I feel like I should say it again. The world may never choose you, but he does. The world may never choose you, but he does. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Paul, would you come up? Hallelujah. Romans 8, what shall separate you from the love of God? Shall trials or hardship, should principalities or mights and dominions? Romans 8 tells us no, none of those things, none of those things can separate you from the love of God that before the foundation of the earth was ever laid, he already made up his mind about you. Before you ever took your first breath, he already made up his mind about you. And what he chose about you is that he was gonna love you. That he was gonna love you even if it meant a cross. Even if it meant taking on your sin upon himself. He said yes to the cross because he loved you. He said yes to the cross because he loved you. will not you stand with me this morning?